Amen. What a great way to start Sunday while you're standing. If you'll grab your Bibles with me for our scripture reading and turn to the book of Zephaniah. It's kind of back toward the end of the Old Testament. Might have to flip around a little bit if you're using a pew Bible in front of you. It is on page 937. And we'll be reading Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 2 through 6 this morning. Judgment is coming, but there's hope through the darkness. Uh, on the uh, the back table, either on your way in or um, perhaps on your way out, Pastor Chris put together a uh, a chart that kind of explains a little bit. It's kind of a it's a big picture, kind of an overview uh, of the book. Uh, if you're reading along, and kind of has the chapter uh, numbers and verses and things that are back here, just an overview of the book that Pastor uh, Bruce is going to be preaching through here uh, uh, in the next uh, several weeks. So if you want to pick one of those up on the uh, on the way out. Uh, help you in your study of Zephaniah. So follow along with me as I read uh, from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and uh, we are just reminded that that, that judgment is coming, that there is a, uh, a penalty for our sin. Well, Lord, we are reminded that there is hope through the darkness, and that hope is found uh, in you and in what we have uh, sung about this morning. Open our hearts and minds to uh, just be changed by your word, and we thank you for uh, Pastor Bruce and his preparation, and ask that you would be with him as he uh, just speaks uh, what he's been studying this week and what you've laid on his heart. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll talk about a doomsday scenario. Zephaniah kicks off his message with a bang and not in a good way. And the reason for that is because the nation of Judah was guilty of some pretty gross sins, some gross negligence in its relationship with the Lord. And so as a result, Zephaniah warns that judgment is now coming. In fact, they were a lot like the little boy who was lost at Disney World and Once they realized he was missing, of course, his parents frantically called security and and began to frantically search for him. And at last they found him eating an ice cream cone at the end of one of the parades. He was enjoying himself, having the time of his life, all the while totally oblivious to the fact that he was lost. Many people today are just like that. They're like the little boy at Disney World, lost. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 7 through 38, that as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The Apostle Paul picks up on what Jesus says here, and he himself writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come 
like a thief in the night. While people are saying, oh, there's peace, there's security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And in the same way, the prophet Zephaniah warns now the nation of Judah, the people of God. And he's warning is fairly clear. In fact, it's audaciously clear. Judgment is coming whether people realize it or not. But the people of Judah, if you can imagine this, seem to ignore the warning that judgment was coming upon them. They believed that God would do nothing, either good or bad. And so here we are, it was a dark time when commitment to the Lord had been blotted out by years of adultery among the people of God. And so now the people were dominated by religious compromise. And as a result, the land was now morally bankrupt. It was spiritually dark. The people no longer had a true concept of who their God was. They thought that they could just ignore God. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. The Lord won't do anything about it, either good or bad. He, in other words, is irrelevant to our lives. And so Zephaniah comes on the scene as a prophet of God, as a, as a spokesperson for God, and challenges this prevailing worldview with an intense warning of judgment to come on the day of the Lord. Now, the intensity of this warning must have caused both shock and awe to God's people. It's certainly not the way most of us would start a blog or even a book. And yet Zephaniah begins this book with an intense warning of judgment. Yes, he will talk about the love of God. He will talk about the hope that is found in God as our refuge. But Zephaniah begins with judgment. And indeed, the order is rather significant. First judgment, then love. For how can we understand the wonder of God's saving love if we do not first face the fact of God's judgment and our need to be saved. And so my plea for us here this morning is that we would open our hearts so that we might hear Zephaniah's warning. Judgment is coming whether the people realize it. What we find first here from Zephaniah and his warning of judgment is that it is coming upon the whole world. It's coming upon the whole world. Zephaniah begins this message by declaring that universal judgment is coming and there is nothing that you can do about it. He warns that this judgment upon the whole world, it will be swift and it will be devastating. Notice again what God declares in verses 2 through 3. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, you can't get more comprehensive than that. Man and beast, birds and fish, every living thing will be destroyed from the face of the earth. It's, it's the reversal of creation with a global devastation. Zephaniah is demonstrating for us here the totality and the severity of God's judgment. 
In fact, this judgment will be so total, no one or no thing shall escape it. Zephaniah's warning, it actually echoes God's warning to Noah of the coming world flood in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. Except the words here by Zephaniah are even stronger than that in Genesis, since even the fish are included, and there's no reference to survivors. And so here is a judgment more comprehensive than the global flood. Here God is sweeping away everything from the face of the earth. Why? For everything on the face of the earth has been affected by sin. Now, the extreme language of this judgment is not without purpose. Zephaniah wants to grab the attention of God's people here. He wants to shake them, wake them up to their senses, if you will. At the same time, Zephaniah is warning us of God's final judgment that is still to come. The ultimate day of the Lord when Jesus returns. And this is where Zephaniah still speaks to us today. God is still the righteous judge of the universe. And he will no more tolerate sin in us than he did with his chosen people in Zephaniah's day. And so there is coming a day when every human being will have to give an account of his or her life to the creator of the universe. So what do we know? about this coming judgment of the day of the Lord. Well, we actually know a few things, even from the text here given to us, and that is that this judgment, first of all, look at this, is from God himself. This judgment is from God himself. Did you notice all the personal pronouns that God used? He says, I, I, what will God do? I will utterly sweep away everything. God says, I will sweep away man and beast. He says, I will sweep away the birds and the fish. I will cut off mankind. Four times here, God declares, I will do this. Indicating that God is personally involved in judgment. Now, this idea may frighten us at first. But Zephaniah is teaching us that God is not just some impersonal, distant power threatening our lives. On the contrary, God is both just and loving. He takes personal responsibility for seeing that justice is done so that wickedness is punished and his character is vindicated. Of course, in the New Testament, the God of Zephaniah is revealed in the person of of Jesus Christ. And so to see Jesus is to see God. And as we observe through the scriptures, the life and death of Jesus Christ, we see clearly both the the justice and the love of God. In fact, Paul makes mentions of this in 2 Corinthians 5, where, where he explained that on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How? By making Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so it is through the death of Jesus on the cross that God shows us his justice by judging our sin in Jesus, and God shows us his love 
by forgiving us our sins and offering us the free gift of his righteousness. So when we think now, when we read here, especially in the minor prophets like Zephaniah, of God's coming judgment, we need to think of, when we think of God as personally involved in the final judgment of the world, we must also think about Jesus, who reveals God as both just and loving. For anything less is a false view of God. And so we learn here, first of all, that this judgment is from God. Second, we learn that this judgment is fully deserved. Oh, my. It is fully deserved. When people face a personal tragedy in their lives, it's so normal many times for them to think, man, what have I done to deserve this? Why has God done this to me? And there are no easy answers to questions like that. But we do know from the scriptures that suffering is not always the direct result of a person's sin. So Job, for example, is described as a man who was blameless and upright, and yet he himself experienced disasters that came upon his property, even his family. And he himself experienced suffering in his own body. And then you go to the New Testament where Jesus taught the same truth. When his disciples saw a blind man from birth, they asked him in John 9, chapter 2, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer was clear in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. In Luke chapter 13, when people asked Jesus about a massacre that happened in Galilee and the collapse of a tower in Siloam that killed 18 people, Jesus made it clear that those things did not happen to those particular people because they were somehow more guilty of sin than anyone else on the face of the earth. However, Jesus did say in verse 5, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So what does he mean? simply means that we are all sinners. And we all deserve the judgment of God. In disasters of this kind, tragedies like 9-11, pandemics like COVID, help us to remember that life is rather short and that we will all stand before God one day to give an account of our lives. It also reminds us not to take God's grace and protection for granted. There's another truth we learn about this judgment to come, and that is it will finally come. Zephaniah wants us to know at the very beginning of his message that God's judgment will finally come to the whole world. When he writes, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, he he uses two Hebrew words to convey that God's final judgment will be total and it will be certain. In fact, this phrase, sweeping away, conveys the idea of of bringing to an end. It indicates total destruction. In other words, God will sweep clean all the wickedness and evil in the world when he comes to judge at the end of the age. The New Testament teaches the same truth. Peter explains why God is delaying this final act of judgment when he writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that 
with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And in words that are very similar to Zephaniah's description, Peter then describes this day of the Lord, this day of judgment in verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In the words of Zephaniah, the the rubble of the wicked will be swept away as well. This warning about God's judgment. Folks, listen to me. It is a wake-up call to the people of God then and to us now today. We can even say that this warning of God's coming judgment, it is actually a sign of God's love for us. That He does warn us about His coming judgment. Most of you know that our family loves to go snow skiing in the mountains of Colorado. It's our favorite vacation, favorite thing to go do as a, as a family. And we have done it for many years now, created great memories. And uh, we just love being up in the mountains, especially in the wintertime when the mountains are snow-packed and you're up in those, the snow. And it's just, it is just majestic. It is beautiful. It is gorgeous and You can go to the same mountain, see the same scenery, and yet just still be in awe of it time after time after time. We we thoroughly enjoy it. But getting caught in an avalanche can be deadly. In fact, many people, year after year, experience such death. And so it's imperative, we have learned over the years to pay attention to avalanche warnings when venturing out into more challenging terrain, especially in the backcountry. Ski patrol gives those warnings because they have people's best interest at heart. They don't want to find skiers swept away by an avalanche and buried 10 feet under snow. And so the warning is actually an act of compassion by ski And in the same way, God has our best interest at heart when he warns us about the judgment to come. It's an act of his love and compassion to warn us ahead of time. And the question is, will we heed God's warning or will we, like the people in Zephaniah's day, simply ignore it? It's the difference between life and death. And so with great love, even with A great sense of urgency, Zephaniah warns us that judgment is coming upon the whole world. But let us also hear this morning that judgment begins with the people of God, number two. It begins with the house of God or the people of God. It's actually possible to live comfortably with the thought of God's coming judgment. We can easily live with a false sense of security because we think that judgment somehow doesn't involve us or that we are even exempt from it. 
And so Zephaniah begins with this overarching final judgment to come, and then he lasers in, he zeroes in very specifically on God's people. This, of course, again, would have shocked and even terrified them to hear God say in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I can just imagine them saying to themselves, what? you got to be kidding me. We might even be saying, what, the, even the Israelites, these are God's own chosen people. How can this be? But yet they are at the top of the list in chapter 1 here of Zephaniah. It's one of the most sobering chapters in all the Bible. God's judgment is coming, and it begins with God's people first. And that's actually a really important biblical truth to know. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so understand a truth here. Judgment does not avoid the household of God, the people of God. It simply starts there. And then it flows out to the rest of the world where everyone is judged and no one is up to it on their own. The people of Judah. These are some privileged people. In fact, they are greatly privileged. They were blessed by God to be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. They experienced God's mercy in ways that other people had not. They were actually given the very revelation of God's will for their lives. Many of us share the same privileges today. Indeed, our privileges even now are greater because of the riches of our inheritance with Christ. Read all about it in Ephesians chapter 1. And so Zephaniah reminds us, however, that with great privileges comes great responsibility. And furthermore, Zephaniah now brings us God's message that if we as his people fail to live responsibly as God's people, we deserve judgment. At the same time, I do want to make clear that if we are saved, if we are born again, that is, if we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then we need not fear the final judgment to come. As Paul writes in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has, has borne the judgment that we deserve. And according to 1 Peter 3.8, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. But that does not alter the fact that we are still accountable to God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. So, please hear me. If we profess to follow Jesus this morning, if that's our claim, but we live ungodly. We should examine ourselves in the light of God's warning of judgment. 
Listen, in spite of all their privilege, God says to his people, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That phrase, stretch out my hand. You realize that is the exact same phrase that God used when he sent the ten plagues against the Egyptians. God's outstretched hand is an image of judgment. But why? Why did God promise now to stretch out his hand against his own people? Well, the answer is found, as we saw last Sunday, in the central indictment against God's people. The reason for judgment on God's people is this. It's because the people were complacent toward God. Complacency was at the heart of it. They thought God would do nothing, either good or bad. The complacent are people who deceive themselves. They think they are self-reliant and self-secure in this world. And therefore, they deceptively have been, in their thinking... I'm no longer accountable to God. But notice what God declares in verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. And so the complacent think that they can just ignore God, that it doesn't matter what you do or how you live. Why? Because the Lord won't do anything good or bad. The thinking in their minds is the Lord, he won't bless the righteous and the Lord won't punish the wicked. And so here people are who didn't necessarily deny the existence of God, but they certainly doubt the very relevance of God. And so they lived as if God didn't matter. They lived as if there were no ramifications for their behavior. And so Zephaniah warns them that God does matter. And it does matter how you live. He warns them judgment is coming and it begins with the complacent in God's household. In verses, in the rest of verses 4 through 6, Zephaniah begins to reveal, he begins to show to us who these complacent are. He actually identifies for us the characteristics of the complacent, what we might call the marks of complacent. And there's three of them that I want to highlight for you here. And that first of all, a complacent heart or a characteristic of a complacent heart is marked by idolatry. Zephaniah identifies three forms of idolatry that were prevalent among God's people in his day. The worship of Baal, the worship of the stars, and the worship of Milcom or Moloch. Notice what God says in verses 4 and 5. He says, And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Now, Bell, I'm sure many of you have heard of Bell before, that name. It was a fertil- he was a fertility god that promised prosperity, even security in your life. And, and prostitution was, was associated with the worship of Bell. 
people who worship Baal hope to gain prosperity, hope to gain security for themselves and their family. And if you worship Baal, you gave your offering to the temple prostitute by employing their services in hopes of securing this prosperity and security in your life. But this false hope came at a very high cost. Marriages were destroyed since sex was no longer a gift within the covenant of marriage, but simply a commodity to be purchased. And even today, the gods of prosperity demand that we put our careers ahead of God, that we make moral compromises to get get ahead. The worship of the stars is just another form of superstition. It seems that as the people abandon their worship of the one true God who made the stars, they turn to the stars to now give their their lives meaning. In fact, they believe that the stars actually controlled their destiny. But God made it very clear that the worship of creation over the creator is idolatry. In Deuteronomy 4.19, it is said... And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Milcom was an Amorite god who was also called Molech, whose service frequently involved the sacrifice of children. This practice promised blessings to those who were willing to make such a a radical sacrifice. And so if you worship the God of Molech, you sacrifice your children to this God so that you could get ahead in life. You placed your child on the altar with the false hope of getting a blessing or achieving your dreams and goals in life. And the people of Judah readily complied. But it was in disobedience to what God had said in Leviticus 18.21. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God. Why? I am the Lord, he says. And so God's people were blatantly guilty of idolatry. They worshipped the false gods of Baal, Moloch, and the stars. They had bought the lie that you can use religion to get ahead in life. And now judgment was coming. Now today's idols may not be Bell and Moloch, but make no mistake, our culture is filled with idolatry just the same. Simply stated, idolatry is anything that I look at and say in my heart, if I have that, my life now has value and meaning, significance, purpose. If anything in the world is more fundamental than God to your joy and purpose and meaning in life, then that thing has become an idol. It has supplanted God in your heart and in your affections. And you will pursue that thing with an abandon and an intensity that should be reserved for God alone. So first we find that a complacent heart is marked by idolatry. Second, we find that a complacent heart is marked by duplicity, or you might even want to write disloyalty. Verse 5 says that God's people thought they could combine worshiping these false gods with worshiping the one true God. And so it wasn't that they didn't believe in God. It wasn't that they abandoned God altogether. They just wanted to add in 
some other options and thus make sure that all their religious bases were covered. The sin here technically was called syncretism. And what the people were doing was taking the false religions of their neighbors and mixing it in with the worship of the Lord. But God makes it clear that His truth is not mixed with error, and it only leads to more separation from Him as the one true God who alone is worthy of our devotion and worship. As Jesus said in Matthew 14, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. But the people of Judah, man, they were guilty of divided hearts, of disloyal hearts. They wanted to serve God, but they also wanted to hold on to the things of this world. And Zephaniah says, judgment is coming. Listen, you can't expect that our Heavenly Father is going to be pleased if you go to church on Sunday and then sacrifice your child on Monday. God doesn't work this way. In fact, there is actually an insanity here to the people's thinking in Zephaniah's day. And yet, this insanity is prevalent in our day, even in our churches. How many expect God's blessing on their lives because they claim allegiance to Jesus Christ? All while dividing their devotion with the idols of this world and chasing happiness rather than pursuing Christ. Jesus reminds us of the futility of worshiping at the feet of multiple gods. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, verse 24, he says clearly, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, which is at the root of all of our idolatry anyway. There's a third mark that Zephaniah identifies for us. A complacent heart is marked by idolatry. It's marked by duplicity or disloyalty. And then number three, it's also marked by, worst of all, apostasy. God says in verse 6, look at it with me again. He says, I will stretch out my hand against those who have what? Turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And so there were people in Judah who at one time had appeared to be following the Lord, had appeared to be obeying God's word. Perhaps they were even regular in attending the temple services. Perhaps they gave their sacrifices as an offering to God. Perhaps they even listened to God's word as the Old Testament books of Moses were read and proclaimed by the priests and the prophets. And perhaps they had even sought to live by God's commandments in their daily lives. But now, now they have rejected God outright. They have turned back from following the Lord. They have surrendered their allegiance to Him. They may have been devoted worshipers of God at one time, but now they no longer seek His help or call on the name of the Lord as their God. And so in the face of such apostasy, God is now prepared to act with judgment. After all, God declares in Hebrews 
chapter 10, verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, draws back, turns back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so God's word, through the prophet Zephaniah, should challenge us here this morning and do so deeply. For we too can be guilty of worshiping our idols, such as career, family, money, sex, rather than our living, loving Lord. We too here can be guilty of divided hearts, disloyal hearts, influenced by the culture that we live in. We can be deceived into thinking that somehow we can serve God and hang on to the things of this world. We might even be guilty of apostasy here this morning, turning back from following the Lord and rejecting Him altogether, and yet in His mercy and in His grace, God warns us here of the dangers of a complacent heart. He warns us of the reality of the judgment to come, beginning with God's people first. Like God's people in Zephaniah's day, are we here? It me, am I? Are we guilty of complacency? Do you think in your heart or in your mind, even though you may never verbalize it, do you think somehow that God will do nothing, either good or bad? You see, the danger with a complacent heart is that it's neither stirred by what God is doing among his people, nor affected by what God promises to do. When the heart is complacent, it begins to rot on the inside, and then it, be- it hardens toward God. It hardens toward his word. Where now when we are confronted with his word, when we're confronted with the truth of God, we walk away from it. We make no changes to our lives and our lifestyle. When we refuse to follow the Lord, whether it's in idolatry, duplicity, or apostasy, folks, listen, we can expect God's judgment. So is there any hope? Is there any hope here for us this morning? Yes! Judgment is coming, but God gives us hope. There is hope for those who heed the warning to repent and worship the Lord as your refuge and king. And so this morning, may we hear, all of us here, may we hear Zephaniah's warning. If we choose to forsake the Lord for the pursuit of false gods, yes, we are in danger of judgment. But there's hope for the repentant in the outpouring of God's wrath. The good news is there's a refuge There's a refuge in Jesus Christ. There's a refuge for all who are willing to humble themselves, turn from their sin, and seek the Lord. As Zephaniah calls out to us in chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so this means that we must respond. To do nothing 
is to place yourself in the danger of God's wrath. So may we, like Joshua, may we choose to follow the Lord. Even renew that commitment, that surrender to Him. And to worship God alone. Joshua 24, 15 says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so before us here this morning are two choices. We can choose to follow God and we can experience His loving grace or we can choose to persist in complacency and face God's judgment. What will you choose? With your heads bowed. I pray that through the power of God's Word and through the power of His Spirit, you are convicted to choose to follow the Lord. And that may mean, first of all, humbling yourselves and turning from sin and then seeking the Lord in forgiveness of that sin. And if that needs to be your choice even now, man, take some time, take a few moments to do that in prayer. In the quietness of your heart, in the quietness of this auditorium, cry out to the Lord. Renew your service to the Lord, your allegiance to worship God alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word. And while it has been hard to hear perhaps this morning, it is in your grace and love that it comes to us through the prophet Zephaniah. And so let us have open hearts to be convicted where we need to be, to be challenged, and then to respond appropriately in light of Zephaniah's warning of God's judgment. Lord, let us know that there is a refuge in Jesus Christ that we can hide in. For he has borne the wrath of our sins at the cross. And so we give thanks for his refuge. Lord, forgive us of our sins and help us as a church, as individuals, to follow you and only you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Before we're dismissed, I just want to uh, let you know that in a couple of Sundays, we're going to hit the pause button in our series in Zephaniah, and we're going to take some time uh, during the services, the two worship services on February 7th, to uh, just talk about and really to give thanks to our God uh, for His gracious provision to our church family uh, in miraculous ways and specifically his financial provision, but God has been good way beyond just the finances of our church. And so we'll give a brief report of our 2020 budgets, and uh, we'll also have available for you the 2021 
general and mission budgets available that Sunday. But we want to take time as a church family and really just celebrate and thank God for his goodness and grace to us and how he has provided for our church family. And even those outside of our church family through our benevolence ministry um, over the last year, which obviously was consumed by a pandemic. And it is nothing less than a miracle when you hear what was given to God by you all. And we want to celebrate that. And most of all, we want to give glory to God and end it with communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so mark your calendars for February the 7th. Uh, I want to encourage you to continue to give, obviously, whether it's in person here this morning, uh, in the offering box, you can drop in your contribution or online. And if you're here and in need of help, uh, whether it's food assistance or financial assistance, please, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We have ample funds to help people who are in, in need. And uh, whether that's our church family or someone outside of our church family that you may know of, refer them to our church. Have them call us, reach out to our office, and uh, talk to us that we might be able to do something. And so next Sunday, though, uh, it's the last Sunday of January, we will discover from Zephaniah that silence is golden. You don't want to miss next Sunday. Silence is golden. Until then, may you leave knowing, though, that God's judgment is coming, but there's hope through the darkness when we turn to the Lord and worship Him as our refuge and King. You are dismissed.